0: Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss' The Wise Man's Fear, page by page. This is page 559. But the day after I told my loose screw story, as Dayton eventually came to refer to it, Tempe stopped ignoring me. This time, after I stumbled, he stopped and faced me. His fingers flicked. Disapproval. Irritation. Go back, he said, settling into the dance position that came before my stumble. I went into the same position and tried to mimic him. I lost my balance again and had to shuffle my feet to keep from stumbling. My feet are stupid, I muttered a edemic, curling the fingers on my left hand. Embarrassment. No. Tempe grabbed my hips in his hands and twisted them. Then he pushed my shoulders back and slapped at my knee, making me bend it. Yes. I tried moving forward again and felt the difference. I still lost my balance, but only a little. No, he said. Watch. He tapped his shoulder. This. He stood directly in front of me, barely a foot away, and repeated the motion. He turned, his hands made a circle to the side, and his shoulder pushed into my chest. It was the same motion you would make if you were trying to push open a door with your shoulder. Tempe wasn't moving very quickly, but his shoulder pushed me firmly aside. It wasn't rough or sudden, but the force of it was irresistible, like when a horse brushes up against you on a crowded street. I moved through it again, focusing on my shoulder. I didn't stumble. Since we were the only ones at camp, I kept the smile from my face and gestured, "'Happiness.' "'Thank you.' Understatement." Tempe said nothing. His face was blank and his hands were still. He merely went back to where he stood before and began his dance again from the beginning, facing away from me. I tried to remain stoic about the exchange, but I took this as a great compliment. Had I known more about the Adam, I would have realized it was far more than that. Tempe and I came over a rise to find Martin waiting for us. It was too early for lunch, so hope rose in my chest as I thought that finally, after all these long days of searching, he might have caught the bandit's trail. I wanted to show you this, Martin said, gesturing to a tall, sprawling, fern-like plant that stood a dozen feet away. A bit of a rare thing. Been years since I've seen one. What is it? It's called Anne's Blade, he said, proudly looking it over. You'll need to keep an eye out. Not many folk know about them, so it might give us a clue if there are any more of them about. That's the
1: page. I'm Jeremy. I'm Dorana. I'm Nick. The first thing that leaps out to me on this page is the rarity of this, uh, this flower, and as we learn on Tomorrow's page, it has some very peculiar properties. I suspect that this flower is native to the Fae, and the reason it's so rare is that it only appears in places where the boundaries between the fae and this world are thin.
2: Ooh, I like that read a lot, but I feel like I'm going to reserve my judgment till we talk about it more tomorrow.
1: Yeah. I wonder it does. Cause it does have a kind of like,
0: not exactly supernatural, but a pretty peculiar property about it. That, that mm-hmm. would be a nice piece of, of, of world building if that turns out to be true.
1: And I, I think it, it is a little bit of foreshadowing or at the very least uh, world building in that we are leaving, as we talk about in this chapter, we're leaving sort of the known world behind. This is a frontier, even though it's inside the map, so to speak, as we'll talk about tomorrow. This is kind of undiscovered country and things are getting a little bit weird. And also, Quoth does get sucked into the Fae, gets sucked off in the Fae <laughs> um, very, very soon. So I think that this is a little bit of a sense that things are getting stranger as we go deeper and deeper into the forest.
0: Getting sucked off in the fey. That's what they want these days. <laughs> 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 uh, 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 <laughs> oh, mercy.
2: I think it's worth noting on this page that like, this is the moment at, at which Tempe starts to like acknowledge Quoth in the dance and uh, it's an important moment in their relationship as characters.
1: It really is. And Quoth seems to suggest that the, the thing that changed was that he told the golden screw story and that somehow caused a, uh, a switch to flip in Tempe. I don't think it's necessarily that I do think that Tempe is, is feeling more comfortable with him and feels, you know, like he trusts him and like, he knows that Quoth is genuinely trying to understand him and his culture and I also think that, you know, Tempe is, as we eventually learn, violating his people's precepts by teaching him the K-10. So I think that it's not like a moment of weakness for Tempe necessarily, but just he's so lonely and so craving someone to share something communal with that he now feels close enough to Kvothe that he's willing to, to you know, knowingly make this this big violation um, so I think this tells us a lot about Tempe's character, how kind of sensitive he is.
2: hmm I can't remember if that sensitivity is seen as a weakness by the adem or not
1: The adem as I've said before, the Adem don't seem to have a high opinion of Tempe in general. We can examine that when it comes up. Okay. uh This is perhaps the first uh official appearance of the the adjective as hand gesture. Um, Jeremy pointed out that we kind of do a proto version of it earlier on when he's learning it. Oh no, okay, we have it. We have this earlier on on page uh, 548 and 549. We have lines where he describes the hand gesture and then the the adjective. Um, so that's sort of the introduction for it, and this is the first time that this stuff comes into play. Uh, not quite completely divorced from the hand. So we have on this page, his fingers flicked, colon, disapproval, irritation, but we are being drawn into a method of writing where in having an italicized adjective is enough to indicate uh, the gesture is present. Mm -hmm. It's getting more and more common.
0: Yeah, this is is the technique that he will employ throughout the rest of the book whenever there's a conversation in a demic. And I also like that Quoth is now comfortable enough in Adamic that he, uh, like can grumble to himself in it without feeling self-conscious about it. You know, he's conversant he's conversant enough that he doesn't do that in in uh, a Turin. He does it in Adamic instead. I also the way that Tempe teaches Quoth is very familiar to me. If you've ever like taken any kind of martial arts instruction or any kind of like instruction in in some kind of like physical movement. Oftentimes, like, your instructor or your trainer will just, like, it's easier, rather than telling you what you should be doing, it's just easier to, like, show you by moving your body until you're doing the thing right. Because sometimes it's hard to communicate those ideas any other way. So this feels very authentic to me. And we also know that the Adem are just, like, more comfortable with physical touch than than other people might be. Uh, so it it seems in character to me.
2: Reasonable.
1: Yeah. I want to just quickly uh, jump back a moment. You were talking about the grumbling. Uh, Kvoth says, my feet are stupid, which is funny and cute. And it also sounds like something Tempe would say, which mm-hmm. probably suggests to us something about... It might suggest something about the construction of the language of a demic, or it might just be kind of a broken sentence, which is of the type you might say when you're still fresh with the language.
0: Yes, I completely agree. I also... This is also, I think, when we start to clue into the fact that the Keitan is not a dance. It is like a martial arts exercise because Tempe is demonstrating when you do this motion, this is what it's for, right? Like this is how it translates into a thing you would do in a fight. And that helps both understanding like what it's for and the context in which it's used helps both get it correctly.
2: That makes sense. I wonder if, um, if it has kind of like a, a dual purpose, like the the same way that say something like Tai Chi kind of has a dual purpose.
0: Oh, I I think I think it serves the same function as the slowed down version of Tai Chi does. Like it is an exercise that keeps your body limber, but it is also teach it is also helping you keep in mind the the stances or the forms of the of combat. In- so
1: if I can if I can apply my lens as I mentioned in a previous episode, I do possess a black belt in taekwondo, though I have uh, not uh, used it in some time. In taekwondo, there are uh, a series of forms, or at least in uh, under the World Taekwondo Federation, there are two diametrically opposed federations that claim to manage taekwondo, and I am part of the World Taekwondo Federation, not the International Taekwondo Federation. In the uh, WTF, uh, no pun intended. There are eight patterns or forms of uh, progressively more, uh, progressively higher complexity. And at lower levels, you learn the lower level forms, like pattern one, two, three, and then uh, progressively up higher until you reach eight. Uh, and they can be done at different speeds with different intensity. But it is what you were saying, Jeremy. It is it is meant to kind of like keep you limber, keep you flexible. And what I'm getting at here is that the K10 may not be like a singular. Dance. It may be you know there may be like multiple forms that you do in it. Also like Tai Chi. I think Tai Chi isn't just one thing. I think that there are probably many different patterns or um, I'm going to say choreography for lack of a better word, different versions of it. I don't think that when you see again uh, to be lightly racist, the Tai Chi grannies. I don't think they're always doing the same motions. I think there's multiple forms that that they can go through. And so what I'm getting at here is that the K10 may not be just one singular repetition of motions, but it may be more complex than that where you do like a part of it or you do, you know, the the first Ketan, you do the eighth Ketan. Yeah, he's not just doing the same five things every day. He's probably doing a bunch of different routines. I
0: completely agree. And it also puts me in mind of when I, in my limited experience of like European medieval martial arts, when you're fighting like German longsword or Italian longsword, there's a bunch of different like stances that you can take, but... Those stances do not exist so that you stand in them. They are they are positions that your body is likely to end up in as you transition from one attack to another, or one def- or one defense to an attack, or something like that. Just because of the ergonomics of the weapon and the way the body naturally moves, you know, you might there's a stance where you start out basically with like your sword pointing behind you over your shoulder, and there's another stance where your sword, like your arms are pointed sort of down in front of you, and your sword point is pointing at the ground. And while you could you know you can start a fight in either of those positions it they make a lot more sense when you realize, oh, one of these is the start of a slash downwards and the other one is the end of that slash, and then I can bring it back up to my other shoulder and attack again and that's like another stance you know so like understanding the context for which the the motions exist uh can help you give you a more complete understanding of like why you're doing what you're doing and what it's for cool. Is there anything else you want to discuss on this page? Or is it letter time?
2: I am out of things. Let us do mailbag.
1: Letter time. This is a letter from Patrick, not Rothfuss, who writes on page 537. And it pains me to say this, but the subject of this email is Jeremy is right. Nick is wrong. Uh-oh. Hello, pagers. On this page, Tempe steps up close to Kvothe when they are talking and then reevaluates and takes a couple steps back. Quoth realizes that ADEMs stand closer to each other when talking, and Nick uses this as evidence toward his previous theory that Tempe is a big dumb-dumb and could not tell when Dayton was being aggressive toward Quoth. While it is true that the ADEMs stand close while talking, we later learn that they stand closer to someone they consider a threat in order to strike them if necessary. In the scene where Nick came up with this theory, Tempe first looks at Dayden's hand to see if he is making aggressive gestures. Of course, Dayton is not making any gestures, Tempe recognizes because Dayton does not know ADEM hand talk. Then Tempe looks at everyone's feet, presumably to check their stance, and then steps closer to Dayton. I am with Jeremy on this in that I find it baffling that Tempe is too stupid to recognize this as a tense moment and would instead be worrying about how close he is standing to everyone in general. If nothing else, Tempe would not have to look at everyone's feet to tell how far apart everyone is standing. I could go on, but in short, Jeremy is right and Nick is wrong. On a different topic, Curtis writes in on page 538 to ask why Kot Quoth is comfortable with naming and describing the Chandrian multiple times in a couple of days. While Kvothe does describe the Chandrian, especially Cinder, multiple times, he only capital N names them once. This happens through the Adam story that Shaheen tells him. Immediately following that story is an interlude featuring Bast freaking out. Quoth explains that while it is possible for the Chandrian to tell when their names are spoken, trying to find someone who speaks your name once is like tracking a man through a forest from a single footprint. Quoth also explains that this is likely how the Chandrian found Quoth's troop. His father likely found some of the Chandrian names and worked them into his song, which was rehearsed at every available opportunity. The repetition is what gave the Chandrian a clear direction. Thanks as always. Signed, Patrick, not Rothfuss.
0: Well, as always, I'm glad when listeners correctly uh,
1: recognize that
0: uh, I was right and it was wrong and agree with me.
1: The only um, the only wrinkle here is that as we recently identified, other names do get spoken. We have Syphus spoken in the story here, uh, recently told by by Dayden, which is one of the Chandrian names. We don't know for sure that they've only spoken them once. Have they hidden other Chandrian names about the place? Are we even sure that Shaheen gave him the proper names? Uh, I'm just stirring the pot here. I'm not Wait, really going anywhere with it. But
2: but what if... Okay, so what if how you say the names... Like, what if your intention of speech has something to do with it? So, for example, something like Siphus. If you don't know they're Chandrian, but you say the name Siphus, does it still summon them?
1: Who knows? Right, because your intention
2: is not to... What?
1: i said who knows how it works
2: yeah because i'm just thinking like if your intention is not to is not to say a chandrian's name if you're just using that name as like oh there's a character from a book and or a story and their name is that thing like you're not you don't know that it's a chandrian name so would it still work the same way
1: yeah just the syllables that are magic or is it the intention
0: Yeah, well, I don't even think it's as simple as saying their names, right? Because they don't show up at Quoth's camp because they've been saying the names of the Chandrian. They show up because they've been singing entirely the wrong sort of song. Songs that are specifically about the Chandrian, that reveal some kind of truth about the Chandrian. So I don't think it's as simple or direct as people saying the names of the Chandrian. Because it's not like no one knows stories about the Chandrian. They're just like on the same level of realism as like cinderella right so when people tell stories about the chandrian that's not necessarily enough to invoke them unless those stories are more than just the fairy stories that have been that are kind of the the bastardized remnants of the truth does that make sense
2: yeah okay i get it so that 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 leans towards the intention being important
0: yeah, and like not even just the intention, but like I think that the Chandrian only show up to to shut down instances where where some kind of truth about them or knowledge about them would be revealed that otherwise is not commonly known, right? Like they don't show up when people tell stories about blue fire because that in itself is not enough to incur their their wrath for whatever reason, right? They they show up well we don't know exactly why it is that they really show up, but it's for something more important than that.
2: Hmm.
0: (laughs) However, listeners, we will show up for any reason whatsoever if you mention our
1: names.
2: (laughs) Any reason? I don't know.
1: Any reason. Listeners, look into the mirror and say our names, and we'll be back tomorrow for another page of The Witch.